Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Wendy Lesser, author of You Say to Brick, The Life of Lewis Kahn. Wendy Lesser, author of You Say to Brick, The Life of Louis Kahn. Where'd you get that title? From one of his sayings that he would often repeat when he gave speeches or taught classes. It's just a little kind of four-line anecdote, which I'll give you now. It goes, you say to Brick, what do you want, Brick? And Brick says, I like an arch. And if you say to Brick, well, but I can build a concrete lintel and it'll be much cheaper. What do you say to that, Brick? Brick says, I like an arch. And my idea was it was not only his recognition of materials and how much they meant to him and how their character was important in his building, but it was also a bit about him. You know, he didn't give in easily. He had his own ideas. Why'd you write the book? Why'd you pick Louis Kahn to write about? Um, I had written one previous biography of the Russian composer Dmitry Shostakovich, which was very hard to do. And when I finished it, I thought, I'm never going to write another biography. But my editor for that book, which is who is still my editor and for one in between, kept pushing me and pushing me to write another biography. And I kept saying, no, I am never writing another biography. But I had seen Nathaniel Kahn's movie, My Architect, years ago in 2003 when it came out. And it obviously must have lodged in the back of my mind. Because when I went to the FDR Four Freedoms Park in New York and I saw it, and I re realized that I loved it as a work of architecture and that it had something to say to me and I in turn could say something about it, I also thought, okay, and the guy had a very interesting life, so this could be my next biography. And my editor approved of the idea and it became a reality. <laughs> Did you know much about him before you started? Only what was in uh, Nathaniel's movie, which I remembered pretty well because I saw it twice the year it came out and I think I might even shown it to students a third time because it was such a good movie though, not because I was inherently interested in the subject. And then I, I probably had seen the two art galleries in, at Yale, the Yale Art Gallery and the Yale Center for British Art, but I, I had no strong memory of them. So the, the only work that I really had focused on before I started to write the book was the latest one, The Four Freedoms Park. Well, for people who know nothing about him, what should they know? Okay, well, first of all, uh, he was born in 1901 and died very suddenly in 1974 of a heart attack. He had really just gotten going in his career in the previous 15 years. He was a very late developer as an architect. He was born in a, what is now Estonia. It's been held in different hands since then. And his family left there and came here when he was five years old. And he lived in Philadelphia the rest of his life. And they were Jewish, but he was not a practicing Jew. The parents went to synagogue and after they moved out to LA, you know, were more observant, but Lou was not. Um, and he was not very good at school, ever. In fact, he was pretty terrible at academic subjects. But when he discovered architecture, which was in his last semester of high school, 
at Central High. Is that still a high school in Philadelphia? Yeah, so it was a very good high school, and he had a very good architecture teacher. And he said it opened his eyes, and it made him realize what he could do with his life. It combined his skill at drawing, which he'd had since he was five years old, with his interest in the world and wanting to create things himself. And so he resolved he was going to be an architect at that point, and he went to Penn, which was then, as now, the best, if not, you know, one of the best or the best architecture programs in the country. And, and there his academic problems dropped away. Once he was doing architecture, he was very good at school. And he graduated and got a job right away and had an exciting life for the 20s. And then the Depression hit. And he was out of work for most of the 30s. But luckily, by that time, he had married Esther Israeli, her maiden name was, Esther Khan. She was the daughter of a Philadelphia lawyer. She was from an upper-middle-class family. They moved in with her parents, where he lived for the next 37 years of his life. I mean, he and Esther lived most of their married life with her mother. The father died. Anyway, he went on and he did various kinds of architecture, none of which earned him much of a living. And then he eventually got, uh, he, uh, he was in several partnerships, but they didn't make much profit. And then in 1947, he started teaching architecture at Yale and in 1955 was brought over to Penn and was there for the rest of his life teaching architecture. And he also by that time had his own firm. He had one financially successful uh, building in his entire life and that was the Salk Center in La Jolla, California. Jonas Salk hired him to build that. And it's a very beautiful, the Salk Institute, it's a beautiful, beautiful set of buildings which happened to make a profit for him. His equally beautiful buildings in Dhaka, Bangladesh, in India, both the Yale buildings, Phillips Exeter Library, and all the private houses he did, he lost money on all of them. He was a terrible businessman. He died half a million dollars in debt. Well, you say in, in your book that he had relatively limited output as, uh, as an architect. So how did he get so famous? All of the other architects thought he was great. Uh, and that covered a huge range of kinds of architects. In other words, some of his concrete buildings are associated with a movement that was called brutalism, and the brutalists thought he was wonderful. Some of the people who came out of his uh, office and went on to good careers of their own counted as postmodernists, and the postmodernists thought he was wonderful. The classicists thought he was wonderful. All the people who built all different kinds of buildings thought that Louis Kahn was the you know the way an architect should be, and. I think any normal person who's not an architect who goes inside one of his buildings will feel the same. They, they speak to the human body and to the person who's walking through and experiencing things in motion. They have a dramatic quality. They use light very beautifully, all of them, So, especially all the mature buildings. And I, a small output, it was small compared to a big firm like I.M. Pei or something. But it wasn't that small in the sense that I think there were something like uh, 40 completed projects after he began to become known, after the Yale Art Gallery, which was 1953. And of those 40, I would say 14 are pretty much masterpieces. So that's a lot of masterpieces for one person. He left a lot of unfinished works, according he to did. the book. He did. Some of them were finished. I mean, he left three unfinished that we now have in finished form. The FDR for Freedoms Park, which just got finished in 2012, nearly 40 years after his death. The Dhaka Capitol Building in Bangladesh, which his own employees, who went on to form a firm of their own, finished 
nine years after his death, and the Yale Center for British Art, which one of his previous employees, who was always already working with him as an independent architect on it, finished that about three years after he died. So those three, we know what they should have looked like, and that is what they look like. The other incomplete things were, for instance, the major synagogue in Jerusalem, uh, a huge assembly hall for the people in Venice, um, a, a shopping center in Tehran. Those all just went by the wayside. Nobody was around to finish them, and they weren't far along enough to build. You said he did some private homes. How? He did. What do you have to do to get a guy like Louis Kahn to design a private home? Well, at the beginning, not very much. Like, he was lucky to get his first assignment, which was from a high school friend of his in the 30s. Jesse Ozer <clears throat> is the name of that friend. And he um, hired Lou to design his house, which is still standing in, you know, the greater Philadelphia area, or maybe it's in another city, but it's in Pennsylvania. And then uh, after that, individuals hired him. What, um, what one of them, I spoke to Norma Shapiro. She was a judge in... Uh, in P Philadelphia, I think, but anyway, in Pennsylvania, who died quite recently, but I went to speak to her. She lived in a Louis Kahn house, and she said, we found out that it costs the same to hire a great architect as a bad one. It was just a sort of standard rate for architects, so why not have a great one? So at that point, when he was still just trying to get jobs, anybody could have hired him. And at the very end of his life, Corman House, which is outside of town, you know, it's about a 45-minute, half-hour drive from Philadelphia, that, by then, he was famous, and he had a million different big projects he was supposed to be working on, but Steve Corman was a very persistent guy, and he said he just kept asking Lou over and over again, build my house. I really want you to build my house, and so finally he gave in. When you're a, a budding young architect, how do you get somebody to trust you with your first big thing? I mean, it's not like a painting. It's a, it's a building. Right. That is a good question, and I am not all up on all the mechanisms of bids and, you know, responses and things like that in the way the architecture business works. But uh, early on, he had a very important partner, George Howe, who was another older, famous Philadelphia architect. And Howe came from an important Philadelphia family, a mainline family, and he came from wealth, and, and he thought Lou was great. They had met in the 30s and had done some public-minded projects together. So when Howe wanted to found an architecture firm in 1941. He asked Lou to be his partner. So Howe had great connections. And, and with Howe's connections, they got a lot of federal jobs building worker housing. That was what they were interested in. And they took on a third partner, Oscar Sonorov. And so when Howe moved to Washington to be an actual part of the FDR government at that point, uh, Lou and Oscar continued with this worker housing for a number of years. So they had a track record doing that. And then being a professor, I think, also helped in terms of connection. Before we started uh, recording this, we were talking about his name and whether it's Lewis or Louis or Lou. Can you talk about that? Okay, well, he started life with a completely different name. Leiser or Laser or Lizer, depending how you different people pronounce it. Itza, that was his middle name, Shmulovsky. And his parents were uh, Bela Rekomendelovich and uh, Lieb Shmulovsky, and they married in Riga, Latvia, I mean, it's Latvia now, and then they went to live in what is now Estonia, on an island uh, that was called o um, Ozil then, but is now called Sarema. Anyway, so Lou was either born on the island or right on the mainland right there, and, and in the record of the rabbis, it's written in Hebrew and Russian, 
Lezer Itza Shmulovsky. But the family came to America. First Lieb, the father, came in 1904, and then the mother and the three children came over in 1906. And when the father came to America, he named himself Leopold Kahn, that he was going to have an American name, a Jewish American name, but still an American name. And German Jews are slightly higher class than Eastern European Jews in the Jewish hierarchy. And uh, Lou's parents spoke German with each other. And Leopold, no doubt, thought he was fine passing himself off as a German Jew. So, And he told his wife, rename yourself Khan when you get over here. We're all having American names. So Lou became Louis Isidore Khan or Louis Isidore Khan. We don't know which, actually, because I asked a number of people, did he pronounce his first name Louis or Louis? And I got different answers from different people who knew him well. Of his three children, uh, there are two daughters. One thought it was Louis. The other thought it was Louis. Of People who knew him in his lifetime, you know, that I spoke to, one said it was Lewis and another said it was Louis. So I just gave up and chose the one I preferred, which is Louis. I just call him Louis Kahn. But really, the reason nobody knows is because he never went by his full name. He was called Lou by everyone in his office, you know, his clients. He was just Lou. You write about the scars he had on his face. How did he get that? When he was three, uh, and we have this story really only from him, but also his mother told it to uh, Lou's niece, Rhoda, who's still alive and who I interviewed in Los Angeles. So Rhoda told me the story as well from hearing it from her grandmother. So when he was three years old in the winter, at some point on this Estonian island, there was a little fire burning in the hearth, as it always was, all winter long. And he was entranced by this fire because the coals were not burning red or yellow or orange or a a color of fire that is, as it should be, they were burning blue-green toward the greenish end of the spectrum. So he is fascinated by this. And he went over, there must have been no adults in the room, and he plopped himself down next to this fire. And he had a little pinafore like little boys wore at the beginning of the 20th century. And he scooped some of the coals into his pinafore to see them more clearly, to have them, you know, and to play with them. And immediately a fire started and he put his hands over his eyes to protect them. So the backs of his hands and the lower part of his face were heavily burned. And the family story, which Bertha, that's what she changed her name to, Bertha Khan, told to Rhoda when Rhoda asked about the scars. Bertha said, told her about the accident, and then she said, and his father said, better he should die. You know, this life with this kind of scarring and everything will be terrible. And Bertha said, no, he's going to be a great man. So, and Lou liked to tell that story because he had turned out to be a great man. How noticeable were his scars when he was into adulthood? Uh, pretty noticeable, if you look at the pictures. Uh, and when he, was, when he was very young and started school in Philadelphia, you know, when he was five or six, apparently kids called him Scarface and teased him. And the, the scars were very visible at that point. And I think even when he got to be in his 20s, they were pretty visible. Um, Esther, whom he married and who was a beautiful young woman when he married her, said in an interview that I saw on tape that he used to wear a hat all the time and he was kind of shy about his scars. But after he married her, he must have had enough confidence. If a pretty girl like that liked him, it didn't matter so much and he left off wearing his hat. He was a pretty accomplished musician, according to your book. 
uh, he liked to play the piano. Let's put it that way. There are differences about how good his piano playing was. He was very talented, that's for sure. He, he barely had any music lessons. He, he hid behind a chair and listened to the neighbor girl's music lessons, and then he came out when, they, when the girl and her teacher had left and practiced at the piano. But he never learned to read music. He did it all by ear. He could improvise really well. There are stories even I didn't put into the book, lots of tales about his piano playing, but one of them is people said he would take the Saturday Evening Post and put it on the piano and pretend to play the Saturday Evening Post or whatever he was playing. He would just make it up. Uh, so he, he had an excellent ear and could reproduce what he heard on the piano. But his nephew, Alan, who can play the piano, who was trained as a pianist, said he had a kind of heavy, clunky way of playing the piano. It wasn't like a real pianist. And, Alan, even as a very young man, would laugh when Lou played the piano. But Lou didn't mind when he laughed because that was kind of what he was trying to do, entertain people. But all the stories about Lou, wherever they are, at his home, at other people's homes, when he's sober, when he's drunk, there's always piano playing. He always gets to the piano and plays. How many people did you interview who knew him? Um, hard to say, counting all the different people that wrote in to me and I talked to him on the phone. But, oh, probably in the range of about... 40 to 50, that roughly, counting the people that worked for him and knew him personally and relatives, maybe more than that. It's hard to say. Now, he had a very interesting family life, and how did you balance this book from the, the artistic to the lurid without going too far in either direction? Uh, well, let's, so for your audience, let's clarify the notion of the lurid, and then let me say that I do not view it as lurid. Um, he had three children by three separate women. His wife, Esther, and uh, with, with her he had the daughter, Sue Ann, that was his first daughter. Then with a woman who worked for and with him, a very talented architect herself named Ann Ting, he had a second daughter, Alexandra Ting. And then with Harriet Patterson, a landscape architect who he also worked with and who is still alive, he had the third son, Nathan the third child, the only son, Nathaniel Kahn, who uh, made the movie. So this information about the three families was loosely known in Philadelphia during his lifetime. And the three children knew each other, and the women knew about each other, and in some cases knew each other. Harriet and Anne, the two non-wives, actually spent time together and took care of each other's children. And, stuff. and Esther knew about all three children, of course about her own, but about the other two as well. And it, so it was all sub rosa but known. Then when he died, it was completely swept under the carpet because it had never been written about and never been spoken about publicly. And Nathaniel brought it out in his movie that in 2003 it all became public again in that sense. So while I don't recommend that everybody run around and have three children with three different women, and I would be irritated if my husband did it, I, in a way it's none of my business as, as somebody that's looking into this life. I'm not, I'm not in the business of saying this is how a life should be lived. So. I certainly didn't view it as lurid. I was very interested in what effect this had had on the children, how they viewed their father, um, how he had time to have a personal life of so many dimensions when he clearly was a complete workaholic and was at the office all the time. So there's some interrelation between the personal and, and the work. But I didn't, I didn't think of it as having to either excuse or expose his personal life. It was just a part of his life, the way with Shostakovich, the fact that he had love affairs or the fact that he made certain very bad political decisions in order to protect his children, those are things that you just 
have to recount when you're the biographer. You tell what the person did, and that makes them human. In my view, that makes them a more interesting person, that they had flaws that are, you know, normal human flaws, essentially. I mean, if Lou had been a murderer or, you know, a child rapist or something, I might have decided not to write the biography. I might have thought, too much for me. I can't deal with it. But this, this kind of thing didn't seem to me in any way beyond the pale. I did have to do two things to protect what I considered the integrity of the book from, you know, accusations of, oh, she's just being a gossip monger. One was to have separate little sections about what I considered the chief works of architecture, sort of, you know, protected off in their own little realm where we are just looking at the building and not thinking about anything about the person that created them except that he created them. So I have these in situ chapters throughout the book where I look at five of his major structures as if they just, you know, are right in front of us and we're walking through them. And then the other thing I had to do for myself pretty early on in the project was figure out a connection, if I could, between the man who had love affairs and the person that built these buildings. Not to have it be a completely unrelated thing, as for instance with the painter Picasso, you don't think it's unrelated that he had major love affairs and produced children with many different women because painting women was so central to his work. Well, it, an architect is not the same. You can't draw a direct line like that between his work and his personal life. But in the case of Louis Kahn, I was told by many different people that he had a very strong, vital sense of his own body. He'd been a wrestler in college. He walked with a spring to his step. He stayed in very good shape. Even in his 70s, he could run up and down stairs, you know, to his office. And then I saw a picture hanging in the hallway of his daughter, Alex Ting, who lives in the suburbs right around here. And she showed me this picture of him shooting a bow and arrow. And he's wearing a kind of 1930s man-style bathing suit or archery suit that reveals a lot of his muscles. And he looks very strong and very self-confident and has this really powerful stance. And I thought, OK, that guy in that picture had a real sense of the human body and viscerally inhabited his own body. And that is the sense that his buildings convey to us. And that's, in a way, what they make us feel like, that we are physical creatures in a physical space. How was he as a teacher? Uh, at least one of my informants said he might have been the greatest teacher there ever was. But this same guy said, for the first few weeks, you don't have a clue what he's talking about. You know, He talks in his strange language, and you're kind of lost. But then you, you catch on to what he's talking about. And at that point, he's a great teacher. Uh, other people said he was devoted to his students, and he would um, give them all the time that was supposed to be available to them. If he had to spend three hours with them, he would spend the full three hours. He would do crits. That's what they call these architectural sessions, where he would look at the work that they had produced, and he would examine it closely. And if he didn't like it, he would say he didn't like it. And if, if it was different from anything he would have done, but if he thought it was creative, he would say that. He would say, I would never do it like that, but that's a really interesting idea and a great one. And another person, a woman, told me that he didn't want you to imitate him. He wanted to free up spaces that were within you and make you able to do your best work. And she thought that that was a great thing, that you, know, you weren't supposed to become a little Louis Kahn clone, but you were supposed to just be inspired by him to do what, your best work. You say he could draw with both hands at the same time. He could. And there's some photographs of him doing that. I have one in the book, but there's quite a few photographs like that 
at the Architectural Archive here in, in Philadelphia. And uh, he could stand at a blackboard and do that with chalk, you know, d draw two simultaneous circles. I think he was probably born with a talent that was something like that, but it was cultivated in him by an art teacher that he had when he was 11, 12 years old in Philadelphia. All the kids at that point in the Philadelphia public schools who were good at art were recommended to this man, J. Liberty Tad, who ran the, I think it was called the Public Industrial Art School, and he gave lessons to all the talented kids in Philadelphia, and Lou was one of his students. And one of the exercises he would give would be simultaneous ambidextrous drawing. Are any of his paintings or, or art on paper or canvas around? Yeah, oh, there's a lot. Um, his daughter, Sue Ann, his oldest child, owns a lot of them still. There are a number of them in other people's hands. Some of the paintings and drawings that he did, he gave to the people thereof. In, in my book, unfortunately reproduced only in black and white, are a painting he did of Esther's sister, Olivia, and a drawing he did of her other sister, Regina. And those were both owned by those two women. He gave them to them, but they're dead, so their estates own them now. Um, there are other Louis Kahn paintings and drawings and pastels in private hands. And at right now in Texas, at Fort, in Fort Worth, is a show at the Kimball Museum, which he designed, a really beautiful art museum, a traveling show called Louis Kahn, The Power of Architecture. That show has been all over the world. It's been going for four or five years, and it's been in a lot of European cities as well as American ones. But only at the Kimball right now is an additional show in one room about I forget what the specific title of that little show is, but it's a show of his color pastels. And all three children have contributed their work, you know, holdings to it. And so around all four walls of this room are beautiful color pastels that he did of various places he visited in Italy, in Egypt, I think in Greece. And, uh, and then he, did, he traveled all over Canada and America and painted things here, too. So he was really quite an artist, and he probably could have made it as an artist. You know, since he wasn't good with money, he might as well have not been good with money in art. <laughs> I mean, he, he could have been that kind of artist instead of an architecture artist. Well, how many of his buildings have you been in? I have been in, uh, let's see, four of the private houses. He, he did nine. And... Um, I would say, it's very hard to say, but he has six acknowledged masterpieces. I've been in all those. That's the Yale Center for British Art, the um, Salk Institute, the Phillips Exeter Library, the Kimball Art Museum, and the two buildings on the Indian subcontinent. The oh, you've Indi been to the ones? Yeah, the Indian Indi Institute of Management. That's in uh, Gujarat, in Ahmedabad, and the Capitol Building of Bangladesh in Dhaka. And, so, and then I've been to probably, well, Trenton Bathhouse, First Unitarian Church, Richard's Building right here in town, um, maybe one or two others. So, you know, I've probably been in 15 to 20 of his buildings. Did you go to India specifically to see those buildings? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I, I made that trip having told myself 20 years before that I was never going to go to India because the poverty would be too distressing and I wouldn't be able to take it and all that. And, and then I added on Bangladesh because I had to see the Capitol building. And I was going to make the trip on my own and then my husband said, no, I think I better go with you. He had no desire to go either, but he just thought he'd better be along as 
protection, you know. And, but as it turned out, India was incredible. I'm really glad I went. I would go back again in a flash. It's just an amazing culture. And that building, I'm really glad I saw, the Indian Institute of Management. But the masterpiece, I think, the greatest building he ever did is the Capitol Building of Bangladesh. And not too many people are going to travel all the way to Dhaka to see that. In fact, two of his three children haven't seen it yet. Only Nathaniel has been there because he filmed it for his movie. So I've told the other two, the two sisters, they have got to get over there. They really have to see this building because it's so amazing. And in fact, my husband, who'd been dubious about this whole project, uh, he, you know, he said, oh, we, all right, I'll be dragged along. But when he saw the Capitol building of Bangladesh, he said, okay, I admit it, he was a genius. <laughs> well, what did a, a little Jewish boy from Estonia, uh, by way of Philadelphia, get hired to do the Capitol building in, in uh, Bangladesh. a Muslim country. Yeah, a Bangladesh. good question. And, and his daughter, Sue Ann, likes to point out that that is an immigrant tale. And in the, in the present environment, that's an important thing to show that this immigrant Jew in America, who made good in America, was then brought in to do a building in a Muslim country that includes a mosque, a very beautiful mosque, one of the most beautiful rooms I've ever seen. Oh, he designed the mosque? Yeah, he did. Um, and he got to use ideas that had been foiled along all the rest of his career, uh, and he put them into this mosque, so it's really a great, great room. I think, actually, specifically how it came about is that the man who had been assigned to build that Capitol building was a man, uh, uh, it was East Pakistan before it was Bangladesh. That was its official name at the time Lou was hired. It was half of Pakistan, which was a divided country on either side of India. So the East Pakistani architect who was hired to do this was a man named Majoral Islam, and he had trained at Yale briefly. He, he himself was a very good architect. I saw several of his buildings when I was over there. And when he got this assignment, he didn't like the English and French teams that they had paired him up with to build the building. And so he decided, I'll get rid of this whole contract, and I will make them hire a, a great international architect. And he came up with three names, Le Corbusier, Alvar Alto, and Louis Kahn. And at that point, that was about 1962, 63, uh, Lou was beginning to be well known. Vincent Scully had written a little book about him that was published in 62. The Salk Institute was already on its feet. Uh, so other buildings of his were known, and he was very highly regarded among architects. So these three names came up, and Le Corbusier was busy, and Alvar Alto was I think they said indisposed. He had a drinking problem. And, and so Lou got the job. And whether they even knew he was Jewish, I have no idea, because the name K-H-A-N is uh, a Muslim Pakistani name. So they might have been confused. They maybe never even knew that he was Jewish, although eventually, of course, they had to find out. But it wasn't, it wasn't an issue. They didn't make a deal about it. Well, I, I do want to read you this uh, one thing you say. Throughout uh, the nine months, there was a war between... West Pakistan and East Pakistan for independence of Bangladesh. During the nine months of the war, uh, the people who had been paying Khan, the West Pakistanis, were trying to wipe out the people he was directly working for. Yet the project kept going? Well, it didn't actually keep going during those nine months. A part of the story I left out when I was telling it to you is that Majr al-Islam had been hired by the, by the dictator and president, he called himself, of West Pakistan, who was running the whole deal. Ayub Khan. Yeah, exactly. And a similar <laughs> name, right. And, um, and so that was where the money was coming from, West Pakistan, to pay for the job. 
during the nine months of the war, which is a really bad war and, you know, genocidal episodes and all sorts of things. That was, uh, spawned the uh, George Harrison concert for Bangladesh, which people might remember. Right. And all, uh, and, and spawned then an era of poverty and, you know, starvation in Bangladesh afterwards. But anyway, the Bangladeshis, as they came to be called, really wanted their independence. And in the end, they got it when India came in on their side. That's what helped them win the war after nine months. But for the duration of the nine months, Lou and his office did not set foot on the property, did not receive any payments, did not do anything to further the project. They just continued working on it in their office in Philadelphia. And the chief person working on that project was Henry Wilcox, who still lives here and was one of my chief informants. He was um, really Lou's right-hand guy on the Bangladesh project, and he's one of the people that continued working on it for the nine years afterwards. And Henry just often was the only person in the office working on the Bangladesh capital during those nine months, but he kept working away at it. And then when the war was over, and they said, and Lou's office said, we're ready, we'll come back and help you build your own capital, they said, great, come back. And the other funny part of that story is that buildings had already been started by that time. We're talking 1971. And so there were some concrete structures already built sitting there but because Lou's buildings look so much like ruins anyway, I mean, this is true of other buildings, the Salk Institute as much as the, the capital of Bangladesh, nobody bombed these ruins because they thought they were already ruins. <laughs> so when you saw it for the first time, what was your reaction? Uh, well, two different things. I had seen pictures of it in Nathaniel's movie, and still pictures too. This, there's a wonderful photographer named Raymond Meyer who's done some great color pictures of it, so I'd seen those. And I had seen moving pictures of it in Nathaniel's movie, and I knew it was beautiful. And I'd seen it rippling over this lake that surrounds it at sunset and sunrise. So that looked beautiful, too. But when I actually saw it sitting there on this stark, flat landscape, which is now empty around it because all the fun things that people used to do and that are in Nathaniel's movie, their exercises and games and picnicking and everything that they used to be able to do on the land around it, that's now forbidden for security reasons. So there are no Bangladeshis hanging around the area around the building, which is really sad. But uh, So I see this giant nine-story, strangely striped structure sticking up out of this flat landscape. I'm looking at it across the size of a football field or something, and I'm thinking, that just looks weird. It doesn't even look beautiful. It just looks weird. I mean, it looks like it flew in from outer space. So that was my first actual physical impression. But then we were taken essentially underground to enter the building at its lowest level through complicated security mechanisms, giving up your cell phone, everything you own to get in. And once I started wandering around inside the building, I was more impressed even than I had been by the external photographs. I thought, this is a truly beautiful building. Just it became something different on every floor in relation to every bit of light that filtered in. And then when I saw the mosque, I was knocked out. When I saw the eight-sided assembly room where the parliament meets, I was even knocked out there. It was just every bit of it was great inside. So that impression was a kind of one of overwhelming admiration. Are there things about his style that you can look at a building and say, oh, that looks like a Louis Kahn? Definitely not from the outside, no. I mean, they all to me, they all look different from the outside. There are minor similarities you might be able to point to uh, in terms of some of them. Uh, well, he liked brick and concrete, and there are certain ways in which he liked to have the winding, windows facing uh, at angular directions and things like that. But 
he liked cutouts in some of the buildings, but no, I don't think, it's not like Frank Geary where you see that titanium swoop and you say, yeah, that's a Frank Geary. You can't do that with loose buildings. But I think when you get inside them, you feel it. And that's true of the tiniest ones. Escherich House in Chestnut Hill has exactly that same beautiful quality of light and uplifting feeling of space above your head and all sorts of other interesting Louis Kahn qualities in this little house that he completed in 1962 as in the grand buildings of his later, you know, the last dozen years. He, he was capable of giving you that feeling when you're inside one of his structures. What makes the Salt in, Salk Institute so significant? Well, it was his first big assignment of that kind, and Jonas Salk really had faith in him, and Lou also loved Jonas Salk, and they, they each talked for years afterwards about how much they depended on the other, and Lou would always say Jonas Salk was his favorite client, and Salk would say, oh, I admired him so much, and he made up this little poem about Lou after he died and things. This is the uh, inventor of the polio vaccine. Exactly. And because he was the inventor of the polio vaccine and famous because of that, the city of San Diego gave him this beautiful plot of land in La Jolla, north of San Diego, to build a, a biological institute on. And Salk hired Lou to design it. So one of the great things about it is the site. You're on the cliffs overlooking the Pacific Ocean. And Lou built the structure so that, oh, and it was the first structure in which he really figured out how to use concrete. And he had this great concrete guy working for him who wasn't a concrete guy when he hired him, Fred Langford, and who's still working in concrete at, in his late 80s in New Jersey. Um, and Fred worked and worked to make the concrete come out as beautifully as Lou wanted it. And they, you know, they had lots of conversations about the color and the texture and what the formwork, the boards surrounding the concrete would be like and how it should come out. So the concrete is unlike any concrete you've ever seen before at this Salk Institute. And then it looks toward the Pacific Ocean. You enter it through this gate and there are these um, studies for the scientists on the side and then behind them lab buildings and the studies are kind of angled so that they have triangular bits coming out. So as you look down the plaza toward the Pacific, you have these triangles on the side of you guiding your eye toward the water. It's a, it's a wonderful lesson in perspective and in, in a shaped environment. It feels a little like a Greek temple with the top taken off, you know? And for the finishing touch, he was going to have some kind of garden between the two sets of buildings, but he brought in the Mexican architect, Luis Barragan, who he knew was a specialist in gardens. And he brought him all the way up from Mexico to come and look at this muddy space that they hadn't filled in yet. And he said, so what kind of garden should it be? And Luis Barragan says, it should not be a garden, it should be a plaza. And instantly, Salk and Khan, who are both standing by, they look at each other and they nod and they say, right. And they got travertine from uh, Italy, a very pale colored travel tra travertine that doesn't match but complements the color of the concrete so that you have this beautiful pale glow throughout the whole structure. It's really amazing. I highly recommend everyone travel out there to see it. Are his books all still, uh, buildings all still standing? No, uh, some have been, the, the major ones that we know about, the ones that I listed as his uh, masterpieces, those are all still standing, although some are getting to be in kind of bad shape. The Indian Institute of Management really needs renovation. And uh, these buildings do constantly need to be worked on and repaired. They, the Yale Center for British Art just did a major renovation that 
and the building looks beautiful. The Salk Institute is in the process of renovating the teak that's on the, um, the study. So that kind of work needs to go on all the time, and if it doesn't, the building kind of begins to fall apart. But they're all still standing at that level. Some of his earlier works, the, there was an AFL-CIO medical building in Philadelphia that's been torn down. Uh, there, there is a factory that he built for the Olivetti Underwood Company and a synagogue that he built in Westchester County that both have had such renovations done that you wouldn't necessarily recognize the Louis Kahn work. Um, quite a few other early works of his have been torn down. I think the Mill Creek Housing Project and another housing project from very early in his career. So I didn't, I couldn't go back and see, you know, the whole history. If people are watching this across Pennsylvania and they want to go see one of his buildings or a couple of his buildings, where within a day's drive of Pennsylvania should they go? Okay, so without bothering the private house owners, so I won't list them, but that all, virtually all of those are either in Pennsylvania or New Jersey, the private houses. So if they, if they want to look at a book called The Houses of Louis Kahn by Marcus and Whitaker, they can they can see pictures of those private houses and figure out if they want to contact the owners and see them. But uh, aside from that, a very early and beautiful building that he did in uh, Ewing County, New Jersey, so near Trenton, is the Trenton Bathhouse. It's part of the Jewish Community Center there. And now there is a Jewish Community Center, but at the time he built it, there was only the bathhouse and the swimming pool that went with it. It's a very beautiful little building, and he himself thought that that was the start of his mature work. And then the Richards Building right here in town is a celebrated modernist building. It's part of the um, University of Pennsylvania campus. It's the biology building, I think, the Richards Medical Research Building or something. Uh, I myself, it's not one of my favorites. It's very stern, very, very austere modernism with tall brick towers and flush glass against uh, concrete. But it was extremely celebrated in its time. It, it was the first building ever to get its own show at the Museum of Modern Art. That was in 1961. Um, but I would say it's best to go a, a little farther afield and see in New York the Four Freedoms Park, um, which is on Roosevelt Island, or even farther to um, New Haven, Connecticut, and see the two art galleries that are right across the street from each other. All three of those buildings are completely open to the public. You can just walk into any one of those three anytime. You refer to the Escherich House, that's a private house. Mm -hmm. And you say if the Escherich House is one of his stellar achievements, Erdman Hall at Bryn Mawr, a much larger, more expensive project that allowed him to bulk up his employee roles for years, was at least a partial failure. I feel it was, but other people are, you know, fonder of it than I am. It's I gather, though, that the Bryn Mawr students are not too fond of it. They, it's their last choice dorm to be put into. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a work also of strong modernism, very harsh angles and concrete, and it has kind of a cold feeling. And during the time he was designing it, he and Ann Ting, who helped him design it, were squabbling over what the design should be like. And they would go to the Bryn Mawr administration with their competing designs every week or every month, and then they would fight with each other, and then the administration wouldn't know what to do. And finally, Lou said to Anne, back off, it's going to be my design. So I think some of that struggle has interfered with it being a, a really beautiful, coherent building, Erdman Hall. But I only was in it once, and I am not the authority on that. I really love Escherich House. I think it's very beautiful. 
it's inhabited right now by two guys who've gotten a prize for restoring it and conserving it in, in a way that uh, is true to Louis Kahn's architecture. But I met them a couple weeks ago, and they told me they'd had 800 visitors last year. So I don't necessarily want to urge more people to go <laughs> knock on their door. But, but they have really taken care of this valuable thing that they, they own now. How were his designs in, in terms of practical things, like electric wiring and HVAC, and like you always hear Frank Lloyd Wright's roofs leaked? And, and yeah, like right. Uh, some of Lou's, It wasn't all art. Yeah, exactly. Some of Lou's roofs leaked, but they've been repaired. And sometimes they leaked for reasons that were not his fault. For instance, at the Kimball Art Museum, he wanted to use a certain kind of, I believe it was lead, but it might have been another metal for a part of the roof, and he was told he couldn't for financial reasons, and it leaked, and in the end they had to do the thing he wanted when it was redone. I believe that the Phillips Exeter Library has had to be redone for leaks since he built it. Um, and pe the people at Phillips Exeter complained to me about the heating and air conditioning system there. They said it didn't work perfectly, but um, other places it isn't so necessary. For instance, in the in Esherick House, and in the Dhaka building, the capital building of Bangladesh, there's natural air conditioning through openings that, you know, you can open windows and, and it creates a breeze. Or at Dhaka, there's actual cutouts in the buildings that bring in air without bringing in sun. He, he used a series of walls within walls to kind of create protective areas. Um, the Salk Institute is so brilliantly designed in an engineering sense the guy who's the maintenance director there told me this building has been renovated two or three times to bring things up to scratch technologically in the 50 years that have occurred since it was built, and we didn't have to budge the scientists from their studies. That's how well designed it was, because he put in these things called interstitial floors, and all the technical stuff takes place in the interstitial floors, so the maintenance people can go in and fix everything without touching the parts where the scientists are working. So that's pretty great, I think. Did you do distinctive things with lighting? Uh, always. And as time went on, he did more and more with natural light. I mean, he really cared about how sunlight could come in and hit a wall and create a feeling and change over the course of a day. So one of the things I spent time doing at the Indian Institute of Management was just sitting in a little room that was at the end of one long hallway. It was the classroom building. That's a building that's mainly brick, but it has concrete on the walls, too. And it has this one room at the very end that has no function, as far as I could tell, other than that you could sit there and be relaxed and watch the sun move over the wall in interesting ways. And it just, so I'd be there for hours watching the sun do its whole fun thing with that wall. And so that was one thing he did there. The same is true at Escherich House, for sure. And at, the Salk Institute, it's really remarkable. Again, I spent about eight hours there from noon to eight o'clock and watched the sunset, which was terrific, and, and watched what happened to the plaza as the sun moved down over the horizon and the way every surface changed. And all that was part of his plot. He wanted things to look like that. He wanted there to be this dramatic narrative of the sun progressing in the course of the day. How long did it take you to write this book? Uh, about four years. Working continuously on it? Pretty continuously, yeah. I feel like that's kind of a long time, but last night I, at dinner I sat next to Robert Caro, you know, who's working on this multi-volume 
mm -hmm. Johnson thing, and he said to me, how long did it take you to write your Louis Kahn book? And I felt like an idiot saying four years, because it's, it's taking him, you know, decades to write his book. <laughs> your book starts with uh, his death. Why did you decide to do it that way? Um, a couple of reasons. I originally wanted to do it all in reverse chronological order, start with his death and work back to his birth. That was not practical. It just, there was too much explaining who everyone was, you know, in each chapter, which you would learn if you went along in chronological order. But I did decide to keep the death first, partly because it was the most dramatic event in his life, other than the burning, which I saved for the very end, and I put that at, at the last chapter. Um, there had been a lot of misconceptions about the death, even in his own family. People that I interviewed in California had the facts wrong. Uh, they just didn't know which train station he had the heart attack in. They didn't know where he was coming back from. If you, at the time I started this book, if you Googled Louis Kahn's death, all sorts of wrong facts came up, like the fact that his body had not been found for three days. Well, it was two days, and the fact that... Uh, he had crossed out his passport, he didn't cross out his passport. There were all these weird things that had accumulated in the story of his death. So I, I wanted to investigate this. I'm a murder mystery reader, I have to say. And so I went into the architectural archive on my first visit there, and after interviewing the director who knows more about Louis Kahn than anybody in the world, and getting everything he knew at the moment, I said, what do you have about his death? And he brought out a box that had never been opened this is the mystery reader's dream, you know, a, a, a whole box that included the suitcase he was carrying when he died that had DOA taped across it, uh, a log that was kept in his office when they couldn't find him for those two days and all their researches and phone calls they made and how they tried to find it, uh, all the newspaper articles surrounding his death about the miscommunication from New York to Philadelphia because he died in New York's Penn Station. And I, so here was all this incredible material. And then I wrote to the New York City Police Department, I found out which police department was in charge of Penn Station at the time, and I wrote to them and I said, how can I get the police report on his death? And they sent it to me, part of the Freedom of Information Act. So I had an actual record of the two guys who had gone and taken his body to the morgue and everything. And I basically thought, okay, th I need to now lay out this material. Oh, and, and the crossed out passport, I actually got to see the passport, because his daughter Sue Ann had it among her papers, but she had never really dug it out. She dug it out and showed it to me, no cross-outs, nothing, you know. So I had the whole story, and I thought, I really want to get this out there first. Everybody knows he died. You know, you don't start reading about a guy that was born in 1901 and not think he died. So I'm not ruining the story if I put his death first, and in some way that can draw people in. And the funeral, which is part of that chapter, has the function of introducing all the major characters, because they're all there at the funeral. How was his body missing for two days? He... So he died in Penn Station. The police report correctly identified him as Louis Kahn from Philadelphia. I mean, he was taken to the morgue. They, they had this information, but they cabled it to Philadelphia, and they said, Louis Kahn of your city, and then as the address, they gave 1501 Walnut Street. Well, that was his office. His house was uh, 921 Clinton. So the police in Philadelphia got this cable and they sent somebody out to 1501 Walnut. It was a Sunday night. In fact, St. Patrick's Day, Sunday night. So the office was closed up. 
the streets were probably wild. You know, I mean, this, the police had a lot else to do besides go to an empty office and try and notify some widow that her husband was dead. So they just went back to the precinct and they stuffed this little notification in a drawer somewhere and nobody found it. So meanwhile, Esther, staying at home, doesn't know where he is. His office on the Monday morning doesn't know where he is. So they start calling each other and they call Harriet, his uh, most recent mistress and the mother of Nathaniel, and say, do you know where he is? No, Harriet didn't know where he was. Nobody knew where he was. So meanwhile, back in New York, when his body wasn't immediately claimed by the widow, they stuck it in missing persons. And it just lay there in missing persons for two days until on Tuesday, this frantic research that had been going on in Philadelphia yielded the information that he was lying dead in New York. In life, what would he have been like to be around? Everybody described him as extremely lovable and affable and funny. And the people that worked for him often said, you know, he, he would tell a joke on himself, kind of. And he, would, he had this self-effacing manner. At the same time as they all knew he was a genius and was doing this great work, he was not a boastful or egomaniacal person. Um, he was apparently incredibly charming, and one of his colleagues said when he would visit La Jolla and they would wor be working on the Salk Institute, and the, the colleague would have him over and they would have parties at the colleague's house, the colleague said, and he, and he would pick up women, unbelievably, I mean, really attractive women, too, and the guy, the guy could not believe that this little scarred person could attract women like this, and I thought, this is what this man thinks of women, is that they're only interested in some, you know, big muscle man or something. I mean, women are smarter than that. Women know that if somebody is charming and interesting and smart, then you're, you're interested in him. But anyway, he, he could really charm women. And the guy in, in uh, La Jolla says, especially out here in California, where there are a limited number of three-digit IQs. <laughs> <laughs> if you could talk to him, what would you ask him? Hmm. I never thought of that question. I mean, I never asked myself that the entire time I was writing about him. I think I would ask him, this is bizarre, but I would ask him, which are those few words that I couldn't decipher in a dream note that he kept? In 1973, he was in Dhaka, and he had this amazing dream, and I found it on a piece of paper that Sue Ann gave me that no one else had read, and it's in tiny microscopic handwriting, and I put a little microscope, I mean a magnifying glass up to it, and I transcribed it to the best of my ability, but there were a couple words I couldn't guess at. So I would say to him, what did you mean by that little squiggle? But it, the, <laughs> the, the transcript of the dream note is in your book. Yes. Were you able to figure out what it meant? I have my own theories as to what it meant, but I didn't want to, you know, put a dead man on the couch and do my amateur Freudian thing on it. So I just was kind of suggestive. I didn't I didn't say this is what it meant. First of all, I don't think that's how dreams work. They don't just mean one thing. The fact that he wanted to write it down, he thought it meant something. Uh, and it starts off with the phrase, the burnt wood figure recognizable as one I know. That's the beginning of the dream. So a guy that was burned when he was three years old, and the, and the word three actually comes into it as well. He says three inches somewhere else. Um, recognizable as one I know. Anybody who's had any psychological experience would say, that's like when, you know, if you say that in a dream, that means me, <laughs> kind of. So I would say that had something to do with that sense of himself as a burnt figure. And then there are other things in, in the dream having to do with 
being separate from his friends, but having to join them after all, going his own way, so, uh, something to do with a, a beauty in blue is another thing. In other words, something about a woman and some allure that she has from a distance. So it doesn't mean anything in a point-to-point -point way, but it, it had a meaning to him because he wrote it down. And then right after he wrote it down, he wrote last night, and he described the things that had occurred in real life at the dinner they had been to the night before. And Henry was really helpful on this. I didn't tell him I was analyzing a dream. I just said, what happened on this night when you guys were at this dinner with these people? And he gave me the whole story. And then after that, then Lou says, the one is connected to the other. I cannot say how, but the dream had something to do with this. So I just have to take his word for the fact that this mysterious dream is linked to the things that had been discussed the night before. And in his own account, it had something to do with feelings of risk, telling too much to the people at the dinner party, possibly exposing himself and the project to criticism, even though in a well-intentioned way. That, that's all he wrote in the notes. Do you have a favorite building? You know, I, whichever one I've been in most recently is probably my favorite. I've I was just at the Kimball because they had this conference that uh, opened that show about the power of architecture. And I love the Kimball. It's really beautiful. But if you had just plucked me from the sulk, I would say that. And I certainly think the Dhaka building is a masterpiece. And if, if I'd just been visiting there, that's what you would hear. The one I see most often is Four Freedoms Park, because I spend a lot of time in New York. And so anytime anyone comes to visit, especially from a foreign country, I fly them over there on the tram that goes over the East River, and we take a walk to Four Freedoms Park. But really, among the masterpieces, it's hard to choose. They're all so great. Who are the uh, mystery writers you like reading? <laughs> Well, let's see. I'm big on Scandinavian mysteries, so I start with the Martin Beck series, that 10-volume series that was written by Perawalu and Mai Shoal in the 60s. They're the kind of grandparents of great Scandinavian mysteries. And then the Kurt Wallander series uh, that was written by, um, what's his name? Henrik. His, his name has slipped my memory, but the, if you Google the main character, that's Kurt. W-A-L-L-A-N-D-E-R. That's a great series, too. The authors just recently died. Then in America, um, I really like Michael Connolly, who writes an L.A. series, Harry Bosch. And I love Patricia Highsmith. She did the Ripley novels. They're not exactly mysteries. They're more about how do you get away with murder, but <laughs> still an interesting thing. But I read so many. I probably read two or three mysteries a week, so I can't tell you. They just go through me like water, you know? I mean, I can hardly remember the last one I've read. <laughs> Are you going to work on another biography? I am because uh, I owed it to another publisher when I was working on the Louis Kahn one, so I just postponed it to finish it. A very brief biography of Jerome Robbins. We are out of time. We've been speaking with Wendy Lesser. She is the author of this book, You Say to Brick, The Life of Louis Kahn. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.